You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Kingsway. It's so good to be here with you today. I promise we don't all just sit around and play and make videos all day long. Only the cool people do. Anyway... (laughs) It is an exciting time to be at Kingsway. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. I'll get to tell you a little bit about today. And so uh, we're in our second part of the series in Ephesians. After we work through the first part, everything we're going to talk about for this month and next month, especially when we get into like families and marriage, is going to stand on last month's foundation. So it's okay if you missed. I'll bring you up to speed each week. But if you want to go online and hear them for yourself, um, you're going to be blessed and be able to come along with us quicker. So today, let me start with this question. Ready? What has captured your imagination? What has captured your imagination? I remember when I was a young man, a uh, little, little boy, the, the first thing I really remember, I mean, obviously I had toys and I wanted to be a superhero like everybody else. I wanted to be Super Grover. But the first thing that really, he's a superhero, I don't care what you say. The first thing that really got my attention was sports. And I was like a, a, a data junkie. So we didn't really have the internet back then. I know for some of you it's hard to imagine. We didn't have cell phones either. And uh, I would look at baseball cards and football cards. And I would remember, I would just memorize stats and names and, and yards and yards per average and, and all these things. And it is amazing, men, how much you can pack away in that brain and can't remember your wife's birthday. It is unbelievable. But the things that are most important to you, if it has your imagination, you remember it, right? Don't answer yes to that. Okay, so when I was a little boy, that's what had it. And that, and that was true because I played a ton of sports into my middle school years. But somewhere right around 12 years old, something else got my attention. See, I, I got baptized at 12 years old. But honestly, Jesus did not have my attention. When I became somewhere around that seventh grade year, I started to notice girls. And it was amazing. My son, the other day, my eight-year-old son, he looks at me and he says, Dad, I'm not going to get married one day. I said, you're not. I said, well, you're young. Why don't you wait it out and see what happens? He said, no, no, I don't want to get married. I'm going to buy a house and the brothers are going to move in with me. (laughs) Okay. I said, have you asked them about this? He said, yeah, we're all in together. I said, well, what if they want to get married? He said, well, it better be a bigger house. Fair enough. If that's how you choose to live your life, so be it. Given the way college is is working out financially for most people today, you might have to. But anyway, I said, you know, buddy, he's eight. And I said, you know, I get the feeling in just a few years, you might change your mind. He's like, why? Never mind. Anyway, so from roughly middle school through early high school, mid-high school, girls had my imagination. And I'll just leave it at that. I was in this dance with God. You might call it more of a war, a battle, where God was fighting for my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, but I wasn't always giving it to him. I was still very much dabbling in sports, and then in eighth grade, I literally broke my pelvic bone. I've told that story before, and so sports were stripped away from me. So then as I poured my heart, my attention, my focus into girls, it was amazing. I just kept chasing this thing that seemed to be running away. (laughs) Not like that. More like in the metaphorical sense. (laughs) And then I'll never forget, it was the summer before my senior year of high school. I'd gone to camp that summer just like I did every year. And the thing is, I'd gotten so tired of going to the retreat, hearing the sermon, the guy did a great job, and then repenting and nothing changing. And that was my pattern. And so I'd already told God going into this week, like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not playing this game anymore. If you really want life change to happen to me, you're going to have to do it yourself. 
which is maybe actually a good place to be in, although my heart was in the wrong place. So I get to camp, and I don't remember who spoke. I don't remember what they said, which is not all encouraging to a guy like me. But I remember being convicted even within the first night or two. And I just kind of kept resisting. I just sat there. No, no, I'm not moving. I am not changing. I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm playing a game, and I'm sick of it. I remember by, I think it was about Thursday night, the Holy Spirit pulled out his pickaxe and started to chip away at the concrete around my feet. And I remember it was in the middle of the invitation at the end of the message. Again, I have no idea what was said, but it was as if God said to me, you need to go. And I walked down front. I went to my youth minister, and he said, Matt, what are you here for? And I said, I don't know. Now, I played the church game my whole life. I grew up at church. I was there every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. I know some of you, that's not your story. You're new to this. That was my story. My dad was an elder in our church for most of my life. He still is an elder in the same church today, which may have been part of the problem. But being the elder's kid, which is like the worst thing, pastor's kids and elder's kids. My kids are in trouble. But um, I remember as I went forward, I knew the options. He pulled out a piece of paper. He's like, are you ready to receive Christ? Done that. Have you been baptized? Check. Are you ready to rededicate? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not sure I am because I'm tired of playing this game with God. And my youth minister looks at me and he says, I think you need to consider this box right here. And the box said something like, go into full-time ministry. And I said, yeah, that's probably it. And he checked it, and you know, at the end they celebrate. Here's all the people who made decisions for Christ. There's the people who are getting baptized. There's the people who are kind of rededicating, coming back to the Lord. And, and Matt and a couple other people believe that God's calling him a full-time ministry. But here's what I had in mind. I thought it was going to look like my dad, who's been a faithful, hardworking servant. He's taught classes in our church. He's been an elder in our church. I thought that's what I was saying. Yes, I'm going to go with God the rest of my life. Fine, whatever. I don't know why I'm here. God told me I had to come. Before the service was over, my youth minister looked at me and he said, hey, I want to get together with you and go to lunch soon. Okay, no big deal. So uh, over the next week or two, he called my house and left a voicemail on the answering machine. I don't know if you guys know what those are. But um, so I picked up the phone and I called him back. (laughs) It wasn't that bad. (laughs) We at least had push buttons with cords at that point. But anyway, (laughs) Google it. It's called a rotary phone. Anyway. So I went to lunch, and I don't remember where I went with my youth minister. I just remember us having this awkward conversation because I didn't know why we were there. And we're sitting down, and we're talking, and he's laying out all these things. We're just talking about life at school and, you know, kind of my history in the youth group, and I'm a senior now and all these things. And he looks at me, and he says, Matt, I believe that God is calling you into full-time ministry. And I said, I know. I checked the box at camp. He said, I mean like me. And I went, oh, Raggy, (laughs) what? And I said, "I, I don't know. Like at that point in my life, I had literally just set the record, and this isn't me bragging, it's funny. I set the record for making the most money ever in this business law class that we had at my school. I literally, the, the, the teacher was like, I don't literally know how you did it. Like nobody's ever done that. The funny part about it is I had no idea what I was doing. So you're like buying and trading stocks. I literally am guessing, and I just got lucky over and over and over again and made the most money ever. But I was convinced that I must be good at it. So this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go into the business world. I'm gonna have 2.5 kids, the perfect big white house, the picket fence, the whole nine yards. And so when he said that, I'm like, mm, I'm not sure how I can afford that. <laughs> like, I don't know what you make, but I've seen your car. It's not gonna go well for the home team. It's... <laughs> And he said, I just want you to pray about it. So all of that year, my senior year, there was this intense battle for my imagination. Intense. I remember switching what I wanted to do when I went into college 18,000 times. And so if you're young, don't worry. God's got it under 
control. But when I finally said to my parents after changing my mind multiple, multiple times, I think I want to go off to a Bible college, my dad said, yeah, no. As many times as you've changed your mind, we are not investing that kind of cash for you to go waste a year of your life. I'll tell you what, you stay close to home, go to Kent State University for one year, I'll foot the bill, and if after that you still want to go, then I'll send you. So I did. I stayed at home. And it was a sovereign movement of God in my life. I had no idea. I was angry, kind of bitter at my parents. Mom and dad, I love you. Forgave me now. It's like 20-something years ago. I was mad. I thought my parents are trying to hold me back from what God wants to do. They want to take it up with God? It was arrogance. It was arrogance. It was youthful pride. Because God did something while I was at Kent State that he couldn't have done while I was at Bible college. And so what happened at Kent State was, it was amazing. God placed me in all these classes, and some were more beneficial than others, but I kept rubbing shoulders with people who didn't know him. See, most of the people I had contact with in my high school, I grew up in Talmadge, Ohio. We used to be in trivial pursuit as the most churches per capita of any place in the world. So, yeah, there was a huge Catholic and Lutheran influence, but everybody had rubbed shoulders with Jesus at some point or another just about. But when I went to Kent State, only a hop, skip, and a jump up the road, I started meeting people who'd never met him, were very angry at him, and their lives were extremely opposed to him. By God's grace, towards the end of my first year there at Kent State, I ended up in a, a small group dynamics class. I thought, I need to learn how to work in small groups, because in the church world, it seems like I'd be working with people a lot, except for this was like a senior level or a graduate level class I had no business being in. I don't even know how I got in. Somehow they accepted me and put me in the class, and I'm like the 18, 19-year-old kid in a class with a bunch of 25-year-olds. They put us into groups, and we had to take a retreat at the end of the class. We basically had to spend a week together and then write about our interactions socially. It was extremely awkward. We had to stay in this place together and immediately my life started drawing some boundary lines for people. I won't stay in a room with one of the women. There's one other guy in the group. I'll stay with him and if there's not a place for that, I'll sleep on the floor or on the couch. All of them were drinkers. I wasn't. So they busted out a Coke and put a baby bottle nipple on the top for me for the whole weekend. That was great fun. But after we did this homework assignments and kind of interacted, we got towards the end of the night. They had some beer and pizza in them. I'd had about four Cokes. <laughs> and I remember we went around the circle and we were answering these questions, kind of like the would you rather kinds of questions. Would you rather do this or this? And as we started talking about these questions, it came time around for me to answer one of the questions. And one of the questions that came up was, if you could go forward or backward in time anywhere, where would you go and why? And I said this. I had just recently learned that when Jesus died on the cross, see, before they crucified him, they strapped that beam to his shoulders, and he had to carry it around. It probably weighed between 75 and 250 pounds, and he had to march it through the streets. And there's three primary reasons they did this. Number one, they would uh, want to wear the person out. So when they got onto the cross, they would be extremely tired and die quickly. Number two, they would put on a little placard that eventually would hang over their head on the cross what their crime was. So this person is a thief. This person is a murderer. This person is king of the Jews. And the goal is that people would see their crime and think, I don't want to go through what they're going through. I will never commit that crime again. Romans knew what they were doing. But some historians and theologians believe there's a third reason, and it's hard to prove emphatically, but it's at least there, that if someone in the crowd, in the audience, were to jump out and say, this person's innocent, and I'll testify on their behalf, they'd take that person back. 
and start the trial process over again. Except if the, the person is found guilty this time, even with that person being a witness, then they both get crucified. Not surprising, very few people did that, huh? I remember talking to this group that day and telling them, and if I could go forward or backward anywhere in time, I'd want to go back to that day and I'd want to raise my hand and say he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And if I have to die with him, so be it. When I was done telling my little answer to the question, there were some tears around the room. There's at least one person who was cutting up and kind of mocking and the dude next to me, the only other guy in the group, kind of a country guy. We had a lot in common. He looked at me and he goes, man, that makes me want to pull out my Bible and get serious about God again. I remember in that moment, I remember looking around at all those faces. I have no idea where they are today. I have no idea what God is doing in them today. But I remember thinking, God, if this is what it means to give my life to you, then I want to spend the rest of my life doing that. I want to spend the rest of my life telling others about the hope that they have in Jesus. You know, Paul, at one point in the Bible, gives a reference that some of us plant seeds, some of us water the seeds, you know, some of us might pull up some weeds so that the sun can shine. I'm taking his analogy a little further, but the whole point is we play different parts. Somebody sooner or later is going to be the one who reaps the actual harvest, but if each of us plays our part, you never know which part you're going to play. The whole point is in every single moment, are you faithful to the moment? And I can relate with Paul because Paul's entire life got flipped upside down like mine. God came to Paul at one point. I don't know if you know this. His name wasn't even Paul originally. His name was Saul. And God got his attention and radically changed his vision for life. You can read about that if you're curious later in Acts chapter 9. And prior to that, Saul is sold out to God, but if you read the rest of, that's his name, if you read Paul's writings, same guy, changed his name, if you read his writings, the reason why he's sold out to God before his conversion to Christ is because he wants to impress everybody. He wants to be seen as the best of the best of the best, and he wants God and man to know it and pat him on the back. In fact, in the book of Acts, he's actually seen, there's a guy, he's a Christian leader, his name is Stephen, and he, Saul is actually seen overseeing um, his stoning to death. It's not like where they make him smoke marijuana until he dies. They literally picked up rocks and threw at a guy until they die. And then they took Stephen's clothing and they carried it to Saul and they laid it at his feet. And the whole point is, Saul's the guy overseeing it. When you get to Acts chapter 9 verse 1, it says something to the effect of, and Saul is going around making murderous threats, I believe it says in the New Living Translation, against the believers. So in Acts 9, he gets a, a little uh, law and he takes it into Damascus. And his goal is, with this law, with this order, he's allowed to arrest and put in prison and possibly kill any Christian he can find. And on his way to Damascus, suddenly a blinding light shines down out of heaven right onto his face and a voice starts to speak. And it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul doesn't know what to say. Is that you, Lord? And the voice says, it's Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul's like, wait a minute, I'm confused. Now, first of all, I find it fascinating in that story. Jesus doesn't say, it's my people you're persecuting. 
He doesn't say, it's uh, those churches you're persecuting. He says, it's me. Because from heaven, when Jesus looks down at you who love him, he sees himself. Are you with me? You are so important to God that he looks down and literally sees Jesus when he sees you. So much so that he can look at Saul and say, you're persecuting me. When you're killing them, you're killing me. When you're arresting them, you're arresting me. And Saul doesn't know what to do. He goes into Damascus. He literally says he has something like scales over his eyes. Now, I don't know if you've ever been blind before. Some of you may be able to relate to this as you're listening to this message. I had LASIK surgery 14, 15, whatever years ago. And I didn't have, like, like, my corneas weren't thick enough, so they couldn't cut the flap and pull it back. Anybody sick yet? And do, like, the little laser thing. What they had to do for mine is they had to take a cotton swab, dip it in alcohol, and rub off the top layer of skin on my eye. It was unbelievably painful. But they say it's the most effective way to do it, so have fun. For basically a week, I couldn't see anything. I had bandages over my eyes and these little plastic things. Most people that do it the other way, you're fine within like a day. Some people could start seeing even later that day. Not me. Oh, it was terribly painful. I couldn't see anything. I just wanted to scratch and rub, and I couldn't touch anything. So what happened in that week when I couldn't see? As all of a sudden, I could just see all the images. Married man, I could smell my wife, but I couldn't see her, but I could remember what she looked like. I could hear the sound of running water. I couldn't see it, but I could picture what it looked like. And man, it's amazing when you can't see anything, the thoughts, the images that go through your head. You start to wonder, will I ever be able to see again? It's a possible risk. If I'm never able to see again, would my vision for life be big enough? I found in that time frame that God had captured my imagination yet again. Because the things that I started thinking about in between pain and pain pills was all the things I wanted to do for God's kingdom when my eyes were opened. I wonder what it was like for Saul in Damascus as he processed quickly all these things. What has been going on my whole life? My whole life, I've been going down this road, but now I'm being told I need to go this direction, and I don't know what to do, but I know this. I can't keep going. I cannot keep going the way that I'm going right now. And it's that very guy named Saul, which, by the way, means something like big. Eventually goes all in with Christ and gets baptized just within a day or two later. And he changes his name down the road to Paul, which means something like small. Partly because he wanted other people to know. See, before I knew Jesus, I thought I was all that. But once I came to know Jesus, I realized the only thing that matters in this life is Christ and him crucified. He writes this in Ephesians chapter three, verse one. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles, just stop. So, I don't know if you see these, I think these are called ellipses, that little dot, dot, dot. The New Living Translation puts them in there to let you know that Paul and Matt are a lot alike. You didn't know that that's what that meant. Here's why. Because the next, basically, 12 or 13 verses are all a parenthetical thought. Be impressed. It's one of the longest parenthetical thoughts of all time. At the end, towards the end of this message, in about 15 minutes, you're going to see, we're going to pick up at verse 14, and you're going to see Paul pick up, and he says this exact phrase again. When I think of all this, some of you are jumping ahead and looking right now. 
Everything from verse 2 to verse 13 is a parenthetical thought. In other words, it dawns on him. Maybe the church that I'm writing to in Ephesus has forgotten my story. When I think of all this, I'm a prisoner for Christ, for the benefit of the Gentiles. Verse 2, look at verse 2. Assuming, by the way, (laughs) that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. And then it's like it dawns on him. Maybe they don't remember. Maybe they do forgot. Or maybe there's new people in the church and they haven't heard. Let me bring them up to speed. See, what's interesting is when Saul is blind and in Damascus, God goes to a man who's praying at the moment. He says, Ananias, I want you to go find this guy named Saul, and I want you to tell him about me, and you're going to baptize him. And Ananias goes, Saul? I mean, have you heard about him, God? Like, he's killing people. He's like, really? Have I heard about him? Now, God encourages Ananias with this. He goes, Ananias, go, because my plan for Saul is he will suffer greatly for me. Anybody ready to receive Jesus today? And that's one of the most amazing things in the world. The very man who arrested, imprisoned, and killed Christians becomes arrested, imprisoned, and killed because he's a Christian. What in the world could inspire someone to do that? To literally give up their power, their authority, their influence one word grace grace I told you two weeks ago in case you weren't here grace saves you grace changes you and grace gives you a purpose take a look at what Paul says look at verse 6 verse 6 Ephesians 3 and this is God's plan Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promises of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. Here, verse 7, this is amazing to me. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Okay, I get that it's by grace. I just told you that. But what do you mean privilege? 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 Really? Just to give you an example. Paul in the book of Corinthians, first and second, he's writing to the church in Corinth. This is the church in Ephesus. And in Corinthians, he is trying to convince them. See, they're arguing about who's better, Peter or Apollos. Well, Peter baptized me. Well, Apollos baptized me. And, And there's this person and that person. And Paul's going, why are you questioning my love for you? You've seen how hard I've worked for you. You've seen all the things that I've done to serve you. You saw that when I was with you, I didn't even ask for you to give me money. I could have demanded it, but I didn't. Instead, I worked, I made tents, I sold them to give money to all the other people working among you so that you could trust my heart. Why in the world? Why won't you believe me? Then he gets to this point in 2 Corinthians chapter, um, I believe it's 11. I think I put the wrong chapter in. He says this, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? He's talking about all these other apostles who are accusing him. This isn't Peter and Apollos. This is other people who are accusing him. He said, I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number. I've faced death again and again. 
Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have gone often without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. He actually goes on to say, and I have had great anguish over the believers when they are tempted to fall. Now, what's amazing to me is this guy, now go back with me on the screens, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 7. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege. It doesn't sound like a privilege. I've been shipwrecked. I've been starved. I've had sleepless nights. Nobody likes me. I've been left for dead. You don't, that doesn't sound like a very privileged life. I think your definition of privilege, Paul, and my definition of privilege might be off a little bit. And the reason is because something else has gotten Paul's imagination. Something bigger than this moment we're in right now. Something bigger than sports, and cars, and houses, and women. Something bigger and better than jobs, and accolades, and clothing, and shoes. Something far bigger than anything in this life that you might try to replace God with. Paul has gotten a really true visual of God. He literally saw Jesus. In that same passage in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, he talks about at some point he's actually caught up into the third heaven. He's actually shown heaven like John in Revelation. And what he saw is too wonderful for words. He doesn't even know how to put it into expression. But after seeing that, he knows that nothing here could take its place. After seeing that, he goes, man, anything that I need to go to go through for the sake of those who are far from God, it's a privilege because I get to serve the great high king. Man, I wonder what it would look like for us to have Paul's attitude. I want you to get this. Paul was honored to be Jesus to the Gentiles. It literally drove everything he did don't misunderstand. I think it's easy to look at Bible characters and think that they're awesome. And so God did this because they're awesome. Here's how Paul thinks of himself. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. Now, just to explain this, you're not like, what in the world is he talking about? The very short version on this. 
In essence, if you go back and read what we call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through the prophets up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we call the New Testament, you will find little snippets, glimpses of Jesus. It's like a mosaic or a puzzle piece, you know, and you've got all these little pieces, and until all the pieces are put in place and Jesus shows up on the scene, it's like, oh, you mean he's a king like David, except for he's a righteous king. Oh, you mean he's a prophet like Moses, except for he doesn't actually blow up and, and sin. Oh, you mean he's like Elijah in power, but even more powerful. Oh, you mean he's the one who will stomp on the head of the serpent. You mean he's the suffering servant of Isaiah. Oh, I get it. And so all these little snippets came in that Jesus shows up and you see his entire ministry and you go, well, how do you do that? Well, he's God. He told you all along exactly what it was going to look like. It took roughly 1,500 years. I think it's on uh, four different continents and three different languages, uh, 66 different books, and yet they tell the same story because they're all pointing to Jesus. I don't even know how to explain that apart from the fact that Jesus is Lord. And you can amen that. And the mysterious plan is it was not clear until he showed up. And Paul says, I get the honor of telling the Gentiles about this. Because if I don't go, nobody else is going to go and they'll be lost. But they're going to beat you. I know. Isn't it a great honor? They're going to imprison you. I know. It's happened before. And Paul says at one point in his writings, all I know is in every city I go to, the Spirit tells me there's more pain coming. Well, that sounds awesome. <laughs> How do I sign up? I just got to tell you, I, I have it easy as a pastor in America. I don't stand up here all that worried about whether somebody's gonna come down that aisle and shoot me. There's been a couple times. <laughs> but for the most part, I don't stress about it. I don't know what it would be like to leave church today and wonder if I would make it home. I praise God for the country we live in. But I want more. Don't misunderstand that phrase. Please don't read into what I'm saying. Please, please hear my heart. I want more. I want more than a nice house and two cars and three kids. I want more than a church of 2,000 people with a massive building and an awesome school. Because the last time I saw the data, there were roughly 14 to 18,000 people within four and a half miles of where you're sitting right now who don't know Jesus by their own record. I want more. I want more, not because I need a name. I don't care if I ever get noticed or recognized by anybody nationally. I don't care if anybody knows my name. It's just too many people that don't know him. Paul literally says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. That is a terrifying verse in light of what I just read. Those are the verses right before he goes into all the things that he's been through. Praise God we live in Indiana on the west side in the United States of America. Because chances are you'll never have to go through what Paul went through to serve Christ. So what does it mean to imitate I think it means at least this. 
In the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 17, Paul is, I believe, in the city of Athens. I just remember the, what he said, and I always get mixed up where he was, so I think I'm right in that. You can look it up later. And he's in, he's in that town, and he says to them, God has determined the exact times and places set out for you. And he's done this because he is not far from any, any of us. He's right there, and he's placed us in our times, in our towns, in our families, in our schools, so that we might draw near to him. Now, just play that out for a minute. Paul's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then he's telling everybody, it's not an accident that you live where you live. It's not an accident that you're in the job you're in or the school you're in or the family that you're in. I mean, you start to really put that together and really kind of try to wrap your head around it. You know that new person at work that just drives you bonkers or you're afraid of, they might take your job. Is it possible that God has placed them there for your glory to lead them to him? Now think about that. It's an honor for you to do that. What if God took you out of wherever you were, your job, your school, your town, and he placed you here and he plopped you in and you're miserable? That happened to me when I was a freshman in high school. I mean, it's hard enough to be an awkward freshman, but then break your pelvic bone six months earlier and switch schools? Oh, it's terribly frightening. I never really fit in in that town. I never could find my way, but I didn't understand this truth that God placed me there for a reason, for a purpose. What if every time you check out at a restaurant or you go to Starbucks, the person who's serving you, it's not an accidental conversation, but instead a God-ordained one where God is saying to you, speak love, speak life, speak truth into this person. Encourage them, build them up, because when they leave here, you don't know what kind of hell they're going to. And church, I wonder what would happen if we were to see, like Paul, a different vision for our lives. One where we literally see us as people honored, privileged to be on mission. I'll never forget, I was in a Bible college at this point, but I was behind because I went to Kent State my first year. And so I was taking summer and winter courses to try to catch up to graduate on time. And I took a history course. I think it was in the summer. It's like trying to pack an entire semester into two weeks. You go for like crazy eight, 10-hour days, and you go back and write papers and do homework all night. My brain wanted to explode, and I loved it because I love history. My history professor is really well-known. His name was Dr. North, and he was a phenomenal teacher. And I'll never forget, in one of these classes, he just stopped right in the middle, and he got real broken up, real emotional. And he said something to the effect of, guys like me are coming to the end of our time of serving our king. And the Billy Grahams and the James Dobsons and the Bob Russells and the John Caldwells of this world are going to be retiring in the next 10 or 15 years. He said, and I look around and I wonder who is going to stand up and fill the gap. And I sat in that class and I became overwhelmed by the presence of the Spirit and tears just started pouring down my face, dripping onto my page. I put my head down so nobody else could see me. And I remember because I just said, God, God, I don't know what you want to do with me, but I'm tired of fighting you. I'll go wherever you tell me to go. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And if you want to use me in that capacity, so be it. I had no idea 12 years later one of those churches would call. No idea. But God used that moment to change my imagination. I was working in a small church of about 80 people at that time. And I loved those people. And I just envisioned that I was going to be there the rest of my life. 
But God used that brief moment, that one statement by that one guy to say, Matt, I want you to think bigger. It's never been about me. Church, I want you to hear me say this. It is, it is an unbelievable honor to serve this community along with you. It is the greatest privilege that I've ever had to be your pastor. And I'm not going anywhere. The next words out of my mouth are not, I'm leaving. <laughs> I just want you to know, it is an honor to come to work every day and serve such amazing people. I consider myself the luckiest man, at least in Hendricks County, if not in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Give God the glory. He's a word. Church, I feel really, really intimidated to say this, but I feel like God has been telling me this all week. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. I will give every ounce of what I have to the best of my ability to lead you to him. But church, I'm asking you, I'm challenging you, get a vision for your life bigger than whatever you came in with today. Whatever it is that's keeping you from him, would you consider casting it down? Whatever is preventing you, whatever's in the way from you finding that imaginative thing that could truly change the west side of possibly the world, blow it up, push it over, shoot it dead, not literally. Whatever it is you need to do, cast it down and be done with it and step into a vision for life that's far bigger than what you came in here thinking was even possible. You've heard about this thing, some of you, we've talked a little bit about it, called Project New Day. I've been wrestling all week. How do I, I can't stand up here and explain the whole project. My goodness, it took us a couple hours with staff to walk through it all. But if I could summarize it like this, it would be this. Project New Day. Because people matter, space matters. If we lived in Africa where the weather was far better, hardly ever rained, never snowed, we could meet outside under a tree and gather as many people as we could. But we live in Indiana. And by God's grace, we have a huge building, hundreds of thousands of square feet, and we get to share it with this awesome ministry at the school. But as God would have it, have you noticed how full this room is? And all of you like kids. We're okay, most of you like kids. But many of you have kids. And I don't know if you know this, but the major percentage of people in our community is kids. And if you just look at two different graphs, if you were just to take a graph and go 100, 90, 80, 70, 60, all the way down to zero years old, and then you would go to over here to 100%, and then 90%, 80, 70, all the way down to 0%, what you would find is those who are the oldest in America, and especially in our community, have the highest church attendance. But the younger they get, the lower the percentage goes down. So if we want to talk about how do we reach the most amount of people in that 14, 18,000 people range, do you know what the answer is? It's to find those who are far from God and build bridges that they can walk across and say, we want you to know the love of our Savior. And the gospel, I just need to tell you, it is such good news, but it's offensive news. Because if you're far from God and somebody says, you aren't good enough to get to heaven on your own, that's an offensive message. And it doesn't matter how smart you are, how hard you work, you can never get there on your own. So what we want to do as a church is we want to remove every barrier possible 
to them hearing the message about the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And whatever that barrier is, we want to stick a bomb on it and blow it up. Okay, not literally. Don't call the police on me. I'm not a terrorist. I'm just a spiritual terrorist. And if you think I'm crazy, I want you to see this in God's word. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church, that's you, that's not me, that's you, to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you see it? Paul wants you to be a spiritual terrorist. He literally wants you to take the battle to the front lines. There's something, and I don't fully understand this. I'm reading a book right now on this subject. Just want to grow in my understanding of what God is saying. But there's something about when the church, even though it's men and women, young and old, divorced and married, widowed, sinners, educated, uneducated, it doesn't matter your color of skin, but somehow when we come together in our rich variety and all of the gifts and talents and abilities and understandings and experiences he's given us, there's something that happens when we unify as one that literally the rulers in the unseen world, Satan and his minions, get terrified. They lose. God shames them through us being the church. Did you realize you had such a place? Look at the next verse, verse 11. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know the reason we took offering already? is so that I could say what I'm about to say and you wouldn't think I'm asking you for money. This is why every dollar we give counts. When we invest here at Kingsway and we invest in God's kingdom, we're investing in people, not brick and mortar. Your generosity fuels the ministry that God has called us to. We have seen over a 1,000 people baptized at Kingsway over the last eight years. I know churches that have been around over 100 years and have never even scratched the surface of that number. If you add in our missionaries, I don't even know the number. I tried to gather the data. It's really hard to gather that data. I know that just one of our missionaries, Care India, averages somewhere between 300 and 800 baptisms a year. So multiply that over the last eight years. Do you know how many thousands and thousands and thousands and possibly tens of thousands of people have come to know Jesus through you, through your investment, through your time, and through your energy? My last pastor used to say, I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to take as many people with me as I can. When you stand there in heaven, there may be a small congregation of people just going, thank you. Thank you. And church, we're not done yet. And how, how do I know we're not done? Because Jesus ain't come back yet. And that's terrible English. I don't care. <laughs> so there's a work to do. Paul goes on and he says it this way. Look at verse 14. End of parenthetical thought. I'm starting the real sermon now, okay? I'm joking. <laughs> When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. Paul's like, when I, when I think about what he did, he changed me from death to life. He gave my life meaning and purpose. When I think about all that, I just fall to my knees. I don't even know what to say. I'm just like, thank you. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for this honor. Imagine, imagine if 2,000 people were unleashed together to be Jesus to our community. 
Imagine if every school, workplace, house, imagine if every single one of them was saturated with people who love Jesus. What I want to do is I want to send you to your communion time. So communion service, you're going to miss this last part. I'm going to ask you to go out and prepare. I want to use the next few verses in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. And I'm going to pray them over you. Because basically what Paul does is he says, I'm just, I'm just humbled. It's too great for me to imagine. And then he goes on and he prays this prayer over the church in Ephesus. And I just want to pray this over you. So I'm going to ask, and look, if you're visiting with us, this may be weirded out. That's cool. But I just want to ask you to close your eyes. Father, right now, would you speak to each of our hearts as I just pray these words over Kingsway Christian Church? I pray that from God's glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Oh, Father, capture our imagination with your love that we might change this community for you. In Jesus' name, amen.